0: Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Last week, I gave an overview of a healing paradigm, uh, uh, the path of spiritual healing that I put together. We talked about that just in general and today I would like to go into the very first stage of healing which I call invocation. Invocation is learning to trust, learning to be present and as you may remember uh, on the healing grid that we were talking about there are three healing channels. There's the body channel, there's the mind channel. And there's the heart channel. So in the mind channel, invocation, learning to trust, is basically mindfulness meditation. Learning to be present, trusting that awareness will lead to healing, that we don't really need to figure things out, that mindfulness itself will lead to well-being, mindfulness itself will actually even uncover our true nature eventually. and. As we mentioned last week, when we add on the developmental stages to come of compassion and Tantra and non-duality, we get there a lot more quickly. But just developing mindfulness itself is a complete path. Uh, I think everybody here must know about mindfulness, Vipassana meditation. Uh, I'm calling it invocation because from the standpoint of the more advanced stages of Buddhism, they say that the the crucial, the essential point of Hinayana Theravada Buddhism is taking refuge, taking refuge, invoking the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. From the body stage, learning to be present, trusting, Initially, at least, involves becoming grounded. For a a baby from birth, even before birth, to about two years old, learning to be grounded, trusting, the sense of support and nourishment is what allows us not to be lost in fear. And to the extent that there was abandonment issues, trust issues, trauma, accident, illness, in the first couple of years of life, people tend to be a bit ungrounded. This is a crucial point because most of these Eastern practices that are so appealing and so popular these days assume that we're grounded. During the guided meditation, I'm going to emphasize a grounding meditation. And I've really found in my own life, that if I ever start feeling anxious or restless or uh, attacked or put upon in any way, just taking a few grounding breaths is probably the quickest, most direct way to come back and be present. But what I'd like to emphasize, at least in the first part of the talk right now, is the heart quality of trust. And in my experience, there's this balance in our lives between faith and fear. When you have enough faith, there won't be fear. But when fear gets stronger than faith, then we're going to be lost in the fear. The big question, of course, is then, what are you going to have faith in? And if you're a theistic person like I am, you have faith in God, you have faith in the guru, you have faith in Shiva or the mother. But even if you're agnostic or you're even an atheist, can you have faith in practice? And in fact, that's what, in Buddhism, when they're taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, that's what they have faith in. So it's not some external force, it's that you're having faith because as you've been practicing, as you've been watching how suffering arises in your life, you begin to see that by becoming aware of suffering, how it arises in particular, having compassion for suffering... Doing the practices that we have been and will be talking about, they work. You have faith in the Dharma. So this Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, faith in the Buddha means not this historical guy who's, you, people have a statue of him out in your garden. The Buddha is the fact that enlightenment, freedom is a reality. We have faith that freedom from suffering, freedom from fear, freedom itself exists and Faith in the Dharma means there's a path to this, a path that works as it worked for many people and that we can follow ourselves. Being on that path, the more we go into it, the more it deepens our faith, the more we're able then to say, yeah, I mean, I'm having these difficult emotions, I'm feeling afraid, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling, or even positive emotions, I'm feeling Fantastic. But we notice that when we get caught in these emotions, that's what causes suffering, and that having some space around them alleviates suffering. The final thing the Buddhists have faith in is the Sangha. That's us. That's the people who are practicing. And in fact, the Dalai Lama has said that in this age, that the Buddha has become the Sangha, that it's not the historical buddha it's not even it's not even enlightenment that we're trusting it's the community and i think particularly during this pandemic it's very difficult to not get lost in fear and anxiety and restlessness all kinds of other unpleasant emotions if you do not have some sense of community some sense of connection with other people. In fact, that's exactly why I started this group. Uh, I, I, I didn't even know quite what it was going to be about, but at least it was going to be about people getting together once a week and talking about the Dharma, talking about that there is a way through suffering. My guru Maharaji said, if you trust in God, you don't have fear. Now, that's a pretty tall order. You don't have fear. And I've been around a couple of handfuls of people in my life who seem to be totally beyond fear. I'm not beyond fear. And in fact, as a recovering mathematician, I have this equation that all fear is fundamentally fear of death. Because fear is that I'm afraid of something out there. I'm afraid of uh, a virus. I'm afraid of a person. I'm afraid of what's happening to my bank account. Is it possible to be with that fear in a way that we create spaciousness around it instead of really buying into it as a real thing? Fear of death is fundamental tension between the fixated stance of the ego structure that I'm real, Descartes says, I I think, therefore I am, and the fundamentally groundless, open, spacious nature of reality. So that in a sense, we're being invited by our lives to die into the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. We're we're invited to keep dying into love, which is, uh, it's an easy thing to say, but it's not necessarily such an easy thing to do. So that whenever we're feeling restlessness, whenever we're feeling anxious, whenever we're feeling other than grounded and supported and nourished, trusting in the mother, the mother with a capital M, there is some fear there. And I think that many of us, maybe all of us, have gotten used to a background level of fear and anxiety that we assume is the natural human condition, that this is just the way it is. I have a group on Monday nights in San Francisco in the Mission, which is a very crowded place on Monday nights. And last summer, I got to the group early. I I have to find a parking place. I never know how long it's going to take to find a parking place. But I I found one immediately. So I was walking down Valencia Street, where there's a lot of restaurants, really crowded, six o'clock, hot summer day. And people had their phones out. People were talking. And I saw this one guy standing on the side of the sidewalk. He wasn't moving. He wasn't talking to anybody. But he was so still. He was so grounded. He stopped me in my tracks. I just... Looked at him for a second. I kept moving on. I didn't say anything to him, but it was clear that he was completely grounded, that he was not lost in thought, he was not lost in restlessness. And when we meet somebody who is, has dropped down, is trusted, is trusting this letting down, letting go, letting into, it's an unmistakable experience. Now, Grounding is not the end of the path. It's the beginning of the path. It's creating a foundation for us to get centered, for us to open our hearts, move into the tantric phase, move into non-duality. But it's very difficult to maintain any kind of open-heartedness or any kind of resting in non-duality if we're not grounded, because we will be again and again becoming afraid or anxious or restless when certain unsettling events are happening in the environment. If we're completely grounded, then regardless of what it is that's happening out there, we can stay present. So grounding is the somatic embodiment part of it. But right now we're talking about faith. And Carl Jung said, the the psychological rule is that when an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outside his fate. The psychological rule is that when an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outside his fate. He also said almost the same thing, but in a different language, the shadow becomes hostile only when it is ignored. So what we're saying is, can we be grounded enough? Can we have enough faith to be meeting these shadow qualities, these difficult emotions, difficult circumstances, if we don't meet them internally, eventually they're going to get loud enough, they're going to happen outside as fate. What we're talking about here is learning to distinguish between uncertainty and anxiety. Can we be uncertain about how our life, life in general, is unfolding particularly during this new world in which we're living, this pandemic world in which we're living, without moving automatically into anxiety. Uncertainty leads to stress, but does stress automatically have to lead to anxiety? And in fact, there have been a couple of studies in the that were reported in the New York Times recently that that showed the following things that I think are just fascinating. The first one is that unmindful stress, unconscious stress, creates inflammation in the body, leads to illness. Mindful stress does not lead to inflammation in nearly the same degree and is much less likely to lead to illness. So it's not the stress that leads to illness. It's not being conscious of it. And what they also found out there's this big study of 30,000 Americans, and if you had high stress and you felt it would make you sick, you were 43% more likely to die than if, than if you did not have that belief. If you had high stress and you didn't believe that, you were even healthier than a group that had low stress. So once again, it's not, it's not the events of our lives that are causing illness or stress It is our response to them. And is it possible that we can have enough faith in our practice, enough faith in the deity, enough faith in the guru, that we are able to be with things exactly the way they are? Ernest Becker, the fellow that got a Pulitzer Prize for writing The Denial of Death, wrote, The irony of the human condition is that the deepest need is to be free of the anxiety of death and annihilation, But it is life itself which awakens it, and so we shrink from being fully alive. Because by being fully alive, we're opening to uncertainty. Does that lead to fear of death, or can we just be with the uncertainty? So, to me, the big question here is, what do you have faith in? Do you have faith in your practice? Do you have faith in something larger than yourself? your separate self. Is there? Is there something that doesn't change? Is there something that doesn't die? As you know, I run the Living Dying Project and the large part of what we do is offering su- support for people who are dying. Again and again, in fact, I've had two very dear friends die in the last month. Watching how people through their practice to some extent or another get to the point where this surrender is the surrender into love rather than pulling back in fear. Uh, Jerry Jampolsky wrote a book called Love is Letting Go of Fear. And when I heard that title, I thought it was so simplistic. It's just, it really, it bothered me Uh, back in my youth. I thought, oh my God, so simplistic. This is this Marin thing. Uh, But the the longer I lived, there there is some deep truth to that, that love is letting go of fear. I think the title is a bit misleading in that it kind of implies, oh, just let go of fear and then there's going to be love. Uh, The question is, how do we do that? And that's what we're talking about today. The, The three ways we're talking about are deeper faith in the heart, deeper mindfulness in the mind, and being grounded in the body. Several meditation teachers I've been with have said that we need to become intimate with death before our practice really begins to bear fruit. And becoming intimate with death is, in a sense, becoming intimate with our deepest fear. Let's just imagine a moment where you're living your life and something happens where fear arises. You get a phone call or you feel a a, a sensation in your body or you turn on the news and something happens and you feel fear. So in that moment, how do you respond to that? Very often, there is an unconscious pulling back from fear. Fear is underneath the shadow material. Fear is in the unconscious. It's a deeper quality of separateness than shadow emotions. So in that moment where we first experienced fear, very often what we do is focus on the trigger. It's really seldom, at least initially in practice, that we're aware of what it feels like to be afraid. Just as an example right now, if if you were to go into your body and ask yourself, are you feeling totally beyond anxiety, totally beyond restlessness? What does it feel like in your body? Is there some tightness in your shoulders? Is there some tightness in your lower belly? Is there some restlessness in the mind? What does that actually feel like? But if there's a stronger fear, we almost always fixate on the trigger. And I remember the first time in my life that I was actually aware of being afraid. I was staying at my parents' house during the summer. I was at college, and I was. It was a beautiful summer day in uh, Los Altos, California. I was walking from my parents' house across the street to the outdoor mailbox. And I was expecting my grades from the University of California to be in the mailbox. And I was afraid I wasn't going to get straight A's. It was a beautiful summer day. The sun was pouring down on me. And all of a sudden, I could feel what it was like to be afraid without an idea of what I'm afraid of. In Tibetan Buddhism, they have this slogan, drive all blames into oneself. So as long as I'm blaming what's going to be maybe in the mailbox for what I'm feeling. I'm not feeling what's happening. As an agnostic in terms of faith, it's having again and again the experience that when I meet emotions with openness rather than unconsciously grasping at the ones I like and unconsciously pushing away the ones I don't like, then I can notice that healing is beginning to happen. Difficult emotion arises, three possibilities. Pushing it away, I don't want to feel that, I'm going to think about something else. Getting lost in it, number two, oh my God, this is horrible. Number three, having an open, aware, compassionate response to what it is that's going on. So that as an agnostic, we begin to get that if again and again I'm present for what it is that's happening, suffering begins to dissolve, that over time we begin to become kinder human beings, more open human beings, and we also begin to notice that if we're unconsciously acting in the same way, it becomes harder not to do that. I've got this metaphor that's not at all true, but it's the way I like to think about it, that I've got these grooves in my brain, and every time that I act unconsciously, that groove gets a little bit deeper so that the next time it's a little harder not to be stuck in that groove. And every time I act consciously and I notice the unconscious response, I'm aware of it and it becomes conscious, making conscious that was previously unconscious, God pours a little nectar into that groove and it's not quite as deep so that the next time it's easier not to get caught in it. So like Bob Dylan, my first guru, said, what price do we have to pay to get out of going through all these things twice? That's a very good question to ask. I go through this thing almost every day where I'm out doing things and I've got the dirty hand from the virus and the clean hand and I haven't had a chance to do the hand sanitizer yet. And then I use the dirty hand instead of the clean hand to open my car door and then I think, how many things have I touched with the dirty hand? And it's like, I'm going through this, what do I need to sanitize? (laughs) It's like, oh my God, (laughs) right? And as that whole thing is happening, is there some point where I'm just saying, okay, do that thing, just get grounded, do a grounding breath. And that's maybe a, a simplistic example, but I think we have that so many times during the day where there's some sense of anxiety, that we get used to not being fully open and present, and we just assume This is okay. And it it keeps us from, it keeps us from loving. It keeps us from being present. Partly what we're doing here is we are assuming that consciousness survives death, that there is some quality of soul or consciousness or living spirit that is here each moment and will survive death. And it is our conditioning from early childhood where we create an ego structure, a character structure, to deal with our fears, our anxieties, our hopes when we're really young that we we carry on into adulthood. And very often these internalized voices are saying, you need to pay attention to me in order to survive. If you don't pay attention to me, you might not survive. And in fact, one of the stronger ones is the superego inner critic that is saying, you're not a good boy, you're not a good girl, uh, that is very uh, blaming, diminishing, infantilizing. So that right now, if we pay attention to our experience, is there something that is changing? And is there something that is not changing? You're hearing the sound of my voice. There are gaps between the hearing. You're feeling how your breath is coming and going, your body is moving, other sounds in the room. All these things are changing. And then the question is, is there something that doesn't change? Is there a quality of consciousness, of beingness, of awareness that is always so present and so intimate and so familiar that we've ceased noticing it? A large part of spiritual life is learning to find this balance between, yes, that we do have a body and a personality and there are fears and hopes and desires that are changing and will eventually die. And there's another quality of beingness that is infinite and eternal, uh, does not die, in which all the finite stuff is contextualized. We live in a society that is completely fixed, not completely, but very largely fixated on the part that does die. Very seldom do you see something in the news that is saying, well, we're going to die, but also there's consciousness that doesn't die, right? It is those concepts that I'm separate, I'm only separate and I'm going to die, that is creating fear of death. If your mind gets quiet enough, you will notice when you're meditating that right before you start thinking, supposing your mind has gotten quiet, your mind has settled down. Uh, there's a sense of spaciousness, a sense of openness, a sense of uh, some uh, compassion, probably. Then the wandering mind jumps in again. And right before the mind begins to wander, if you really pay attention, there's a slight anxiety, which is fear of death. Or you could say it another way, fear of spaciousness. Because in, in the spaciousness, there's not an I or another way of putting it, that the spaciousness is so vast that the eye thought is just one little thought floating in the vast sky of mind. It's no more important a thought than what's for lunch, or what is the president doing today? It's just there's a thought that's the eye, and in fact, scientists cannot find eye located in the brain with functional MRI scans. There's no place that's the eye. It's just a collection of concepts. The Dharma works. Practice works. And you will notice, whether you have met enlightened beings or not, you will notice that when you have faith in your practice, uh, when you practice, when you open to the next moment, that that tends to dissolve suffering, and that when you grasp, it tends to create suffering. So that this very first stage that we're talking about from the mindfulness channel One of the main things that happens in the mindfulness channel is we begin to become aware of in a very direct way how suffering arises. And once again, suffering, cancer does not cause suffering. Resistance to cancer causes suffering. The pandemic does not cause suffering. Resistance to the pandemic causes suffering. And yes, if your loved ones are are dying or have died or... If you have cancer or your friend has cancer, there will probably be suffering there. But if we don't really carefully notice where the suffering is coming from and we're ascribing it to the external, then healing isn't going to be happening. Can we really see how we're creating suffering? I think one of, for many of us, one of the most immediate and available and direct ways to notice this is through physical discomfort. Stephen Levine had the great line, pain is mandatory, suffering is optional. Is it possible to have discomfort in your body and not suffer? Well, yes, it is. And the medical community has had a very difficult time quantifying pain. Two people can experience the same medical or dental procedure and have wildly different emotional responses to it because there's there's a conflating of pain and fear of pain. And what's often being medicated is fear, or fear plus pain. And some people have a lot more fear than other people have fear, so that two people will need very differing amounts of analgesic to deal with the same amount of uh, physical pain. And there have been studies done of using psychedelics to deal with fear of death. Uh, Stan Groff, for example, had a study fu- funded by the, the federal government And they found that it was successful. But what surprised them was that after the study, many of the people in the study, because they had terminal cancer, to their surprise, experienced a significant reduction in the need for pain medication, even though the psychedelic has no pain-relieving properties. But the fear of the pain was diminished. So once again here, we're talking about fear versus faith. If if you have faith because you're beginning to notice how being present, mindfulness, awareness, embodiment cuts through suffering, then fear will begin to diminish. I will admit that I feel very blessed to have been with Maharaji and Anandamai and the 16th Karmapa, and maybe a dozen people seem to be fully enlightened beings. I had to get to India, and Tibet, and places like this to meet these people. But at the same time, my sense is that Maharaji called me to India because I was a particularly stubborn case that I had to go over and get malaria and hepatitis, and that there are a lot of people who have have equal faith in God and they've never left home. Right? <laughs> that voice in you that's saying, I can't have faith because I didn't meet Maharaji. I know so many people who have not met, quote, a guru in embodiment and have equal faith in God that I do, uh, have equal connectedness with the divine that I do. Joseph Goldstein, the wonderful Vipassana teacher, said, Maharaji must have been a very great teacher because he had all the most difficult students. (laughs) I think I'm right up there toward the top of that list. Uh, I've been meditating for five decades now, and I'm still as neurotic as this guy talking to you right now. There are all kinds of people who have had very profound living experiences with Christ after he died, or Maharaji after he died, or Buddha after he died. And admittedly, much of Buddhism and Christianity have turned into personality cults, where it's not really a living religion, it's more exoteric. But there are also many, many people at any time on this planet who are are seeking and hungry for a a profound relationship with living spirit. If we look at this healing paradigm that I've been talking about, even though what we're saying today is invocation and trust is the first stage, in a way it's actually the second stage. We're kind of skipping the first stage of motivation, which maybe isn't practice, but it's it's what we bring to practice. And if you are motivated enough to become free, then the guru is there. The guru is there in each living moment. It doesn't mean that you have to have Buddha's picture on your altar or statue in your garden or you have to have met some being in person. Uh, there certainly are traditions that say it's important to have a living guru, but I don't believe that because I've seen so many people who have had an equal amount of connectedness and. Love and surrender and have not met, uh, the guru in person. Somebody asked Maharaji, what is the best form in which to worship God? And he said, every form. So it's, it's, it's your neighbor. Uh, it's yourself. I mean, can you look in the mirror and find your guru? Can you look in your mirror and love that being so much that you weep, that that person has your deep well-being at completely at heart? Or is that person looking back at you in the mirror somebody who is is judging you? I mean, if, if somebody came to you and said, you're kind of inadequate, what would you say back to that person? Say, who do you say, who are you to tell me that? But when you tell yourself that, we believe it immediately, right? The guru is within. We were with Maharaji once, and he had kicked everybody out for a few days. The temple has a wall around it to keep the monkeys and the, and the thieves out. And one of the Westerners thought, well, I love Maharaji so much. I'm just going to climb over the wall, and he won't kick me out because I love him so much. And she started climbing over the wall, and Maharaj saw this, and he had the guy called the Chokiadar, kind of the doorkeeper, kick her out, get her out of here. And then he turned to somebody and said, they don't understand, they think I'm this body. It's got nothing to do, it's, got, it, it, it's not the body. It's, it's a quality of consciousness that is equally available in this moment as we are speaking, as it was when I dragged my body uh, 12 time zones away. Faith is not a zero-one process. To me, it's like a, a continuum of gray from zero to percent to 100%, and that most of the time we're sliding around in the middle somewhere. So maybe I am quantifying faith. That I mean, ideally, faith is complete and it's hundred percent, and it's not based on anything. It's just that's that's reality. But for most of us, it's something. It's it's practice. It's something we have to keep working with. I had a, a Hindu deity actually come alive and come into my bedroom. Uh, I uh, was at a temple in India where the statue became. A living embodiment of God. Uh, I've, uh, I've had meditative experiences that are really indescribable. And I've, I don't, I've lost count of how many times I've had truly, uh, fantastic, remarkable experiences. And yet I keep coming back to at least partly identifying with some neurotic, slightly anxious, slightly restless uh, part of my personality structure. Ramdas have had this line, if you're a son of a bitch and you get enlightened, you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch. So that it, it, it's not that faith is necessarily going to make our weirdness go away. It's that we're going to more and more identify with that, which is the context of in which all this other stuff is happening. The, these fantastic experiences are kind of showing us that there's a dreamlike quality to the rest of our life. It's real when you, when you stub your toe, it hurts. When you run out of money and you can't buy food, you get really hungry. Yet these things are true. But at the same time, there is a sense where everything is just this dream that's unfolding, that it's this, it's this divine dance with God. In the West, uh, to me, really, unfortunately, there's been a profound loss of connection with the Mother, with a capital M, with the Divine Mother. And in Eastern religions, there's much more uh, a connection with the Divine Feminine. When we have this, this sense of the Mother, it allows us to feel more protected and supportive even in the strangeness of this waking dream life that we're part of. So, for instance, this one of my favorite poets, Ram Prasad Sen, he was a devotee of Kali, the devouring mother. And he said, Oh, mother, in this lifetime, either you will devour me or I will devour you, but it, but I vow that it is you that I will devour. And what he meant by that, I'm almost sure, is that when we're lost in the world, when we're thinking we're the separateness, when we're caught in the stuff, the mother, the, the form, energy matters devouring us. But when we're fully present and awake, we're devouring the mother. I mean, like right now, are, are we devouring our lives? Are we devouring? There's, there's some kind of intellectual material coming out here that's a bit theoretical. Are you getting lost in that? Am I getting lost in that? Or is it possible? that we can be thinking and talking and moving about and consuming media and getting confused by things. And all of that still is just, it's all the mother. It's all a love affair. In this healing paradigm, and what what's a little difficult about today's conversation is that we're focusing just on the very first step. The very first step is focusing on content. Can I have faith no matter what the content is, can I be with the content? The next step, the heart step is, it's, mo- it's much more about relationship with the content. We don't care about the content so much. It's just, can it be a loving relationship? And then after that, when the heart gets big enough and we go to the tantric stage, the empowerment stage, we begin to go beyond pure and impure, that it's all, it's all this taste of God, if you will. We, don't even care about the relationship as much as the nature of things. What is the nature of this moment of reality of that drink you're pouring into your mouth and your butt sitting on the chair? Is there a sacredness to that? And I use the word sacred and uh, a few atheist Buddhists in one of my groups got upset with the word sacred and we looked it up in the dictionary and it, it does have religious connotations, but to me, there's a, a sacredness to stuff Even right now, if we're just focusing on my words and the meaning these words might have, what if instead you started focusing more on the gaps between my words, the gaps between trying to understand my words, the space in which objects appear. Here's the meditation bell. It's a thing, but it's... It's existing in the space around it. If we start focusing more on the gap, on the space, then it sometimes is easier to begin to get in a very immediate, intimate way, the sacred nature of things. That It doesn't depend on the content. It all has that sense that the, the space reveals the more we can see it in the gap then the more we can get it in the non-gap and in some sense, in some sense life is the gap between birth and death. It's like this big gap here big Bardo So uh, before we meditate I, I'd just like to say a, a couple things here. one thing is and that I said this before earlier today but I'd really like to emphasize it that in my practice the somatic part, has been very important. And maybe it's been particularly important for me because I did spend three or four decades doing Buddhist meditation practice and Hindu and Christian devotional practices and didn't work with my body much. But I find that having grounding and centering to come back to is such a robust tool to have that whenever things get a little bit Wonky or strange to be able to just drop into my body and uh, just examine where the energy is and and sort it out a little bit is such a great way to come back to being present I've got friends who are very accomplished long time meditation teachers who every one of them says that even though I was a monk in Southeast Asia for x number of years or I've been doing this or that practice that all of the practice does not really cut through some of the places where I get lost in relationship, where I get lost in my work life, and that psychotherapy, somatics are really necessary for me to balance my quote, spiritual or meditative life. There's a very interesting and complex interrelationship between our psychophysical life and our spiritual life. What I'm trying to do in this group and in my own life and my other groups is find really practical tools for integrating practice into daily life. There are people in this virtual room here who are probably Buddhists and Hindus and Christians and agnostics and have gurus and don't have gurus, so that there's not one spiritual path that fits everybody here. But there is this work of integrating your spiritual practice into your daily life. I had a very strong practice for a really long time and was remarkably unable to integrate it into my daily life until I started doing some of this somatic stuff. Whether that's true for you, I don't know. But this grounding practice is, according to some people, the quickest way to come back from being attacked, frightened, startled. And I have in one of my groups, people who are on the front lines of healthcare in San Francisco, nurses in the palliative care unit or the emergency department of San Francisco General at St. Francis Hospital. And they say that this grounding breath that we're going to do is the thing that's really kept them sane and prevented really uh, intense burnout. However, next week, we're going to go more fully into the next stage of somatic practice, which is being centered. And I will admit that grounding is not really designed for going out into life. It's the foundation for getting centered, which is for going out into life, if that makes sense. Grounding is zero to two years old, antidote to fear and anxiety, inhabiting the root chakra, trusting the mother, the divine mother, the mother, mother, the earth mother, earth element, Trusting that it's safe to be dependent. But being dependent is not necessarily the best way to be driving an automobile or talking to your boss or buying groceries. But without the grounding piece, the root chakra, it's hard to move up fully to being centered, the second and third chakra, the lower belly, the martial art of being you. Can you be grounded and chop your vegetables? Can you be grounded and take a shower? Can you be grounded and talk to somebody? that is easy to talk to? Can you be grounded to talk to somebody that is hard to talk to? etc. things like that. We'll do about a 20-minute guided meditation. Please begin by examining your motivation. What's it you truly want?
2: What is the most important thing? How willing are you to die into practice, to die beyond knowing, finding freedom from knowing, dying into the spaciousness that is the nature of consciousness. And with this motivation then please invoke that which you most deeply trust, that which does not change, that which is your own true nature, God, guru, self, higher power, mother. Receiving the blessing, It is always available. And in this trust, the mind can begin to relax, open, letting experience unfold naturally, beginning to accept each arising
0: as the path, nothing a distraction from the path,
2: even wandering mind the path. Beginning to notice not only the arising but the space between hearing the space between in breath and out breath between thoughts becoming aware of the spacious nature of the arising. And then beginning to bring this trust also into
0: the physical body by doing a grounding breath in which as you breathe out, you imagine you're pushing energy out through the base of
2: your torso, down in the perineum, down into the earth that nourishes and supports easy natural in-breath, receiving this grounding, nourishing energy. If you like, you can tighten muscles down there for a few breaths just to
0: get in touch with this part of your body, your perineal muscles, your upper adductor, inner thigh muscles, just so you can feel that part of your body as you breathe out. It's not a muscular exercise. It's a surrender into inhabiting a part
2: of our energy body that we have often at least partly abandoned. beginning to have a bit of faith in this dropping down, this letting down. And when there is resistance to this dropping down, just notice it. The next out-breath, drop down into this grounding breath. What does it feel like to be grounded,
0: feeling connected, your legs, your feet connected to the earth, the earth that is offering abundant support, the energy that allows you to thrive in this next moment,
2: regardless of content. Noticing the difference of of the
0: feeling tone in the body between being grounded and then the wandering
2: mind, being lost in this avoidance distraction, without judging, just noticing the difference. And the more we become grounded, can it be a foundation for more deeply
0: loving that which arises, having a more intimate relationship
2: with hearing, with breathing, with sensing, with perceiving? And if you begin to feel a bit grounded, you can let go
0: of working with the breath and just rest in awareness of that which is arising. And if you get really lost in experience, you can take a few grounding breaths. Just having it as a tool to use, particularly
2: in your daily life or in the beginning of a sitting practice to calm the mind. But can it uncover the faith to allow experience to arise without the need to understand or to fix or improve? If there is activity in the mind, instead of
0: trying to be with each thought, can you be with the underlying sense of anxiety or restlessness? What does that feel like?
2: Can we be with that underlying unsettledness without judging it?
0: Is it based in some subtle fear of death? of needing to be active as a way of convincing
2: some part of ourselves that it exists. Faith versus fear in a moment-to-moment unfolding. surrendering again and again, dying into faith. Beyond effort. Can this be a brief foundation for opening the heart, breathing into your heart, boundlessly spacious, connected heart, so that each arising is floating into this vastness and disappearing, still grounded, still embodied,
0: Lower body, stable, firm like a mountain,
2: heart vast like the sky. And then from this space of open-heartedness, offer freely the merit of our practice with the wish that all beings might be free from fear, that all beings might be free from suffering, and the causes of suffering. That all beings might be free. The bell rings, it doesn't mean to stop being grounded particularly. Can
0: one integrate the spaciousness, the groundedness, the heartfeltness into activity?